this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In episode five of the identification season, Just Science interviews Aaron Sims, lab manager of the Forensic Identification Unit for the Lincoln, Nebraska Police Department, about a case involving methamphetamine use and a double homicide. In the early hours of a seemingly normal morning outside Grand Island, Nebraska, Brandon Crago fled a drug rehabilitation center. 19 hours later, Crago had stolen four different cars, evaded police, and traveled 300 miles. At the end of his journey, he took the lives of a retired couple on a farm just outside Lincoln, Nebraska. Using wound and bloodstain pattern analysis, Erin Sims and her team pieced together the story and linked Crago to the killings. Listen along as she recalls the details of the methamphetamine-fueled car chase that led to a double homicide in this week's episode of Just Science. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here is your host, Dr. John Morgan. And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm John Morgan, your host with RTI's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice today. We are at the 103rd conference of the International Association for Identification in San Antonio, Texas. And today with me on the podcast is Aaron Sims from Lincoln, Nebraska Police Department Forensic Laboratory. Aaron is the forensic lab manager in the forensic identification unit and supervisor of the crime scene unit there in Lincoln, having served for 35 years, starting her career as a uniform officer and being a detective sergeant for 16 years and promoted to the Forensic Laboratory Manager of the Forensic Identification Unit in December 2008. And she's going to talk to us today about a very particular case. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So uh, today we're going to be talking about a particular case. Let's uh, talk about some of the background of the perpetrator first, uh, Brandon Crago. So how did Brandon Crago get to the uh, attention of the uh, law enforcement authorities over his, his life? Brandon Crago had already served one term in the penitentiary for a narcotics offense and was under a multi-jurisdictional narcotics investigation. He was one of 15 that they federally indicted. He had been selling methamphetamine to undercover officers and the officers had purchased over 500 grams of methamphetamine from him. And then when they served a warrant on his house, uh, they took out a lot of loaded guns more methamphetamine, marijuana, and a big stack of cash. So it was a pretty lucrative business for him. But he ended up back in jail. And prior to going to federal court, his attorney had finagled him to be released, court-sanctioned, and go to a drug rehab center. So he was sent away from Lincoln, about 100 miles west, into a small town in middle Nebraska, Hastings, Nebraska, so that he could attend a drug rehab center before his trial. How long had he been incarcerated by this point? At this point, he had probably been in on his initial arrest was two months. Okay, so it wasn't very long at all. Yeah, he had been sitting in two months awaiting the federal trial. Mm -hmm. And during that time is when they made arrangements to send him out and get him some rehabilitation in the hope that that looked good for the, the federal court trial. 
Right, right. Yeah, that's very, <laughs> uh, very interesting. And so the drug treatment facility uh, was not extremely secure, I take it. Not extremely secure. They did take his shoes and handed him some flip-flops. So he actually attended all of the meetings and the coursework that he was supposed to attend for the first three days. He lasted three days. And then he took off in the middle of the night wearing his flip-flops and his jeans and a t-shirt. Over this weekend, I did a two-mile walk in my flip-flops. So okay. yeah, it's very easy to, to walk in flip-flops. Well, he did a 30-mile walk and got okay. himself up to uh, <laughs> Grand Island. About three o'clock in the morning, did a home invasion robbery on an elderly woman who was wheelchair-bound, broke into her residence, threatened to kill her unless she handed over her car keys in her vehicle. She didn't have a vehicle. So then he just started rummaging through her house and took money, and she was trying to stop him, and he um, luckily didn't do her any harm, but disabled her wheelchair and then took off again. And she called the police right away, and her, her description of him was, you know, basic white male, medium build, but he had a tattoo of a feather on his neck, a large feather that went down the side of his neck. And she also mentioned that she had been a drug counselor in her younger days, and she felt he was already high and under the influence of some type of a narcotic. So we can assume that somehow he had gotten some narcotic either at the treatment center or in the 30 miles from there. Correct. He had scored some drugs somewhere along the way. What and was his tattoo? Let's talk about it. What, <laughs> what did the tattoo say? It was a feather? It had it's some... a feather, and it has some wording down the side of it, and it's Mantanaus. And I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but in researching it, it is an Indian word for a wolf spirit. And then another translation I found for it was a tumor. So he, yeah, and we talked about before the, the podcast, like I, I think he wanted to be the wolf spirit. I think he wanted to be the wolf spirit, yes. Yeah, but th one of the things about him is, is just like medium build white guy in Nebraska doesn't ne necessarily narrow it down a whole Summertime, flip-flops, jeans and a t-shirt, that's right. about everybody. But so. wolf spirit tattoo, and, and the, you can't see it, of course, on the podcast, but the picture of it, it's a pretty significant thing on his neck there. It, it's probably about six inches long and two inches wide. So it's very noticeable. So at this point, did the police or the people who were investigating at that point able to connect him to the drug rehab center? Had they reported him missing No, yet? he was, was not reported missing yet. And they didn't have any idea who they were looking for other than this description. And he continued on and went to another residence. Now he's about 7 o'clock in the morning. And he did or walked into an unlocked garage and found keys in a car and just took off with the car. The people woke up right as their car was leaving the garage, so they called it in right away too, but they didn't have a description of him. But he caught the eye of the Aurora Police Department about 10 miles down the road and got in high-speed high pursuit with them. Because of the vehicle? They because were... of the vehicle, because mm -hmm. of the stolen vehicle. Mm -hmm. And they were taking county roads on this high-speed pursuit, about 100 miles an hour, and he lost it, flipped it, and jumped out of the vehicle and ran into the cornfield. Wow, that's just like a, it is. It is less like a CSI show. It isn't is it? like a CSI show. He actually show. flipped it and actually walked away. That doesn't happen usually. Not usually. And his first thought was to flip off his T-shirt so that he could change his appearance and go run through the cornfield. And of course, they took some time setting up a perimeter. They got out the canine unit. They got out a helicopter. They locked the fields down. And in Nebraska, in August. Cornfields are eight feet tall. The rows are very dense. They're about a foot apart, and the leaves are razor sharp. So if you run into that shirtless with flip-flops, 
you're you're going to get really cut up and yeah. that's what happened to him sure um, but he managed to evade them and continue through and cornfields go on for miles right and he went on for miles and they had that field locked down for eight hours and never found him. And the next we know of him is he popped out in a farmer's yard and jumped on their ATV and took off with the ATV. And so now he's going cross country across Nebraska. He's just really at this point just fleeing police now. He's he just was, fleeing he police. He probably started off, he was looking for money. He's looking for a way to get some more drugs, to get back to somewhere like where he, maybe to Lincoln. He's or, trying to get back to Lincoln, yes. Yeah. And, but now he's completely lost in the the cornfields and wilderness of Nebraska, and he's, he's going cross-country because he doesn't want to travel on any of the roads. He actually, there's a sprayer attached to the ATV, so we know where he dumped that. He also is seen on video going through a McDonald's, driving the ATV and asking the girl who's giving him his hamburger if she knew of somebody who would want to trade an ATV for a trip to Lincoln. And she didn't. <laughs> she thought he was kind of weird, too. I keep that in my back pocket. Yeah, it's so like, she if kinda... I only had an ATV, I could give somebody a lift across the state. <laughs> so she kind of jotted that down. He really didn't commit any crimes there, but it was just his demeanor, his right. narcotic stench that he was in or whatever, whatever sure. he was under. He couldn't have been too high at this point, though, right? I mean, how, it depends on how much drugs he might have been carrying on it, him. Yeah, it depends. And then his next sighting, he approaches another farmhouse, and there's just one woman out hanging laundry on the clothesline because in Nebraska we still do that and he starts talking to her and he's acting a little out of sorts and crazy and she gets concerned and pretty soon all of the farmhands and all of the children and her husband and there's a big crowd of people that are around him so he kind of calms back down but they give him a bottle of water and she gives him a wet towel to wrap around his shoulders because now he's sunburned on top of being shredded. His tattoo was quite visible and he was quite the sight. And he was asking directions on how to get back up to Lincoln. And he took off again on his ATV. This little trip actually took 19 hours and covered 300 miles. Wow. From when he left the drug rehab and then just zigzagging around Nebraska trying to get back to Lincoln. Well, there's a lot of Nebraska to zigzag there, around There is. In. Yeah. Um, and the next town he gets to is Crete, and he makes a phone call, and pretty much he's done with the ATV and calls his old roommate and says, Must have run out of gas. Bring the truck, come get me. And he did. As soon as he picked him up, he found out, oh, you're on escape status from, you can't come home with me, because that's the first place they're going to look, because he used to be his roommate. So he found him another friend's house, and they traded that couple, the ATV, for the ability to hide out in their house for a day. Okay. <laughs> so that was in Lincoln. So he made it to Lincoln about 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock that night. So he'd been on the road since just after midnight. Wow. Okay. Well, in some respects, I'm impressed. But by the time he gets to this couple's house, I'm, I'm sure he's probably scored some more meth at that point, right? Either um, from the friend well, or somewhere. Well, he's... Um, and he's exerted a lot of energy, too, so you just kind of wonder how much of that whole event was methamphetamine-fueled. Or, yeah. or maybe it could be the opposite, too. At some point, he's going to go back into withdrawal and be crazy because of that, I guess. Yes, yeah. yeah. So he hides out for about a day, and then he takes off on foot, and now he does go over to his old roommate's house because his roommate's holding some guns for him. So he gets a Benelli shotgun. Is this that night still? No, this is the next day. The next day, okay. And by then, the warrant is out for him, and Lincoln has been advised, but we don't really know where to look. We have contacted the roommate 
and Ryan was correct. That was the first place we checked. <laughs> yeah. And at that time, he was over with that other couple where they'd kind of stashed him. So Ryan lied and said, nope, haven't seen him, haven't heard from him. And Which I assume eventually got him in trouble. Eventually it did get him in trouble, yes. And so that was the first place he went so he could arm himself. He also borrowed a pool cue bag so that he could put the shotgun in the pool cue bag and not be obvious when he walked around. So he had to cut off the stock and the butt of that, and he left that with Ryan. And then he went off to collect drug debts. Okay, because he needed money. Because he his needed own money, net. yes. Yeah. And he, we only know of a couple of places he stopped. One of them was Mark, and uh, Mark said he didn't have any money, but Mark was a crossdresser, so he had a variety of wigs to choose from. So, sure. So sure. he gave Brandon a blonde, long, flowing wig as part of his disguise, because he's still wearing jeans and flip flops. Now he has a long flowing wig, he has the uh, pool cue over his back, and he has the tattoo on his neck, and he heads off and starts hitting all of his... Um, he doesn't know exactly how to do a low profile No, thing, he's not he? exactly yeah. low profile. Yeah. He does get to another re residence that we know of, and they also don't have any money to give him, but they do give him, they pretty much outfit him, they give him... A shirt and a new pair of jeans and and some tennis shoes sure. to wear to kind of spruce him up a little bit and send him back out the door right so he ends up at a girlfriend's house overnight doesn't sleep because he's probably scored some more methamphetamine by then and then he starts sure. out on another binge so i'm sure the folks who listen to just science know but methamphetamine is an enormously powerful stimulant yes and so it does allow one to and both get a little crazy and and be able to go on these kinds of sprees without stopping yes and it's highly addictive so the more you take the more you want the better you feel the more energy you have you just keep going yeah. And make it sound good, but that's not good. <laughs> it's not a good thing. Before the podcast, I was chatting with Aaron about uh, the fact that meth has become a fairly big issue in Brazil among truck drivers. And uh, they've had uh, roughly 50,000 deaths per year related to commercial transportation in Brazil, which is an enormous amount. I mean, they, ha they have a pretty sizable population, but that's still an enormous amount. And a large percentage of those are related to drugs, and a large percentage of the drug ones are meth, because there's truck drivers, there's no trucking regulations about how long you can drive. And so they have enormous incentive to be taking meth all day, all night long, so they can keep going. I guess it's cost-effective from their perspective, yeah. but, but also is extraordinarily dangerous puts them in quite the state and so they're doing hair toxicology on all new commercial drivers so back to brandon brandon is is now back we assume with some meth in his system yes and he's on the loose again he the girlfriend says that he left again shortly after midnight he's on foot and he pretty much makes it caddy corner across town which is about a 10 mile jaunt before he steals a car he actually finds an unlocked dodge neon parked in a driveway and that owner is in Las Vegas. So it's the perfect car to steal because no one's going to report it. So he steals that car and now he's got some wheels. He takes off. He drives out into the county and somehow buries that into a ditch. So he has to walk back into town. I told you meth and transportation don't mix. <laughs> yeah. But at, at that time, he's getting close to about seven in the morning and he does a home invasion robbery on uh, an older couple threatens them with the Benelli shotgun, it's a camouflage shotgun, sure. threatens to, to kill them if they uh, don't hand over their, their vehicle. He gets a Jeep Cherokee from them, and he's basically off. They he's call, escalating here he now, is too. Escalating, it's getting much, yes. much more serious than him just, like, 
going after some of his old drug buyers. Now he's going yes. after innocent people, and he's starting to threaten them with that shotgun. Yes, and they call the police right away, and the, def uh, the uh, description they give is the blonde wig, but there's the tattoo on the neck that's still visible and the shotgun, and of course he's got their car. This is quiet Sunday morning until this event starts. This kind of starts everything rolling. And so Brandon pretty much makes the morning 8 o'clock news. It hits the media. Everybody's on alert. But in the meantime, when he leaves their house, he drives up into the county and apparently just selects a farmhouse at random and drives up into that driveway and commits the double homicide at that location. Now let's shift gears a little bit and not talk about what happened. Let's talk about what he said happened because what he said happened is very interesting. It's very different and this yeah. this came out at the sentencing hearing. He wrote a prepared statement for the judge hoping for leniency and he did take responsibility for his actions and blamed it all on years and years of methamphetamine use and you know poor decision making. But he also said that when he got to the Bailey house, he, he was carrying the shotgun in the, in the bag and walking up to the front door when Mr. Bailey came out. He said he pulled his shotgun out and pointed at Mr. Bailey and Mr. Bailey tried to take it from him and he shot Mr. Bailey. And then he heard something off to the side of him and just spun around and shot at the house and that that's how the, the two people were killed. Sounds a lot more didn't mean to kill them kind of Maybe thing, kind right? of a little bit self-defense and now I feel threatened type of thing, so right. I'm, I'm doing this. So something happened in the house, so let's skip over that. There's yeah. another portion to it. Oh, he, please. He leaves that, um, that home and he drives off into another county and he decides he has to switch up vehicles. So he sees another farmhouse with an open garage door. The keys are in the vehicle. He leaves the Cherokee that he's robbed from the other couple in the driveway running, gets in a blue Toyota and takes off with it. Well, she is out walking her dog, luckily, so she doesn't have any contact with him, but she calls the deputies right away. And little did we know at the time, all of the homicide evidence is in that car in that other county. But, you know, they run the plate and they realize right away that it's involved and that we send some detectives up there to search it. So what did you find in the car? Inside that car, we found a long blonde flowing wig. We found camouflage gloves. We found flip-flops and a pair of jeans that had a girl's name in the pocket, which became important. We also found two spent shotgun shells and jewelry box that contained the victim of the homicide's jewelry. Uh, they also found fingerprints in that car, but of course we didn't have them identified at the time. Sure. So in some sense, that car was enough to identify... That, that car was a treasure trove, yeah. yes. Mm -hmm. But but at the time, we um, it's a Sunday morning and the lab's not open and you know everybody are st is still doing their paperwork basically but Lincoln is aware that it's been recovered up there so we have had officers go up there and kind of grab onto that car in the meantime he's got it now new transportation he drives back into Lincoln he does, does another home invasion robbery this time he breaks into his buddy Mark the crossdresser's house mm -hmm. because Mark doesn't open the door and he wakes Mark up by ramming the shotgun butt into his face Mark Mark was just trying to help him the other day, yeah, yeah. Basically, he's pretty wound up at this point, and he tells him that, I know you're holding out on me, I know you got money, I know you got drugs, I want it, I'm going to kill you. I just killed two other people, so one more isn't going to 
affect anything. Sure. So Mark hands over his $80 and his methamphetamine and goes back to bed. And okay. Brandon goes right out the door. Um, he abandons the... The and Mark Toyota. never called the police Mark until never, he was called up with later. Mark right. never called the police. Right. Because just another day in the life of a drug user. You know, this is what happens to them. Yeah, that's true. And they true. don't involve police a lot. Yeah, but not so much. I mean, this is an unusual set of circumstances. I mean, the guy just said he killed two people. He doesn't know whether it was just random folks or, or just another, you Or know. if it was just BS. Yeah, exactly. So he's back on foot again. Now he's pretty much lost his disguise. He didn't pick up a new one from Mark, but he decides he has to get rid of the shotgun now. So he's on his way north. He finds a dumpster in an apartment complex, tosses the pool cue bag and the shotgun in there, continues on, and he goes to one of our seedier hotels right in the middle of Lincoln, Nebraska, and checks in under a false name, pays for it by cash, and by 11 o'clock he's locked up in his hotel room. And our um, officers aren't used to that much activity on a Sunday morning, so everybody's pretty busy, and there's kind of a lull until about noon, and that's when the homicide gets reported. What happened to draw attention was the two victims had dogs, and they were dogs that were show dogs, and didn't normally get let loose, but they came running out of a big cornfield into another farmer's yard, and she recognized them, and she tried to call and got no answer, so she got on her ATV and drove over to the Bailey house, and she observed Mr. Bailey laying deceased in the front yard, and then kind of poked her head in an open garage and opened back interior door and saw Mrs. Bailey, also deceased, so basically left the scene, went back home and called the sheriff's department at that point. Sure. So once the, the sheriffs got to her, the only thing that they could really add to that part of it is that earlier in the morning when they were out doing chores at about 7.20, they heard two shotgun blasts in rapid succession and then about a two-second delay and then two more rapid shotgun blasts. But out in the county, that's, again, not kinda, that unusual. Not that unusual. Yeah. So they didn't think anything yeah. really of it. But that's what they were called is the only other suspicious thing. They didn't see anything because the corn was too high. Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, to some extent, that's why, I mean, you got to have neighbors who care about you. Care and about you and look out, out for you. you. And yeah. know, know about the dog and all that kind of thing. All that, yeah. yes. Um, so then we're in full swing for the crime scene of their Bailey home. Um, and that's when I get introduced into it. So all of this other law enforcement involvement, all of the other reports, all the other jurisdictions, there is a lot of good work that was done by a lot of other agencies, including crime scene work, fingerprinting cars. Officers actually turned in Brandon Crago's fingerprints on most of those stolen cars. Wow. So they did a pretty good job, and that's how we're kind of able to link this crime spree up and as well as we have some video evidence we have some cell phone evidence one of the things that Brandon did when he was at the homicide scene was he made a couple of phone calls from that landline to his girlfriend and to Mark neither one of them picked up so he left messages but he basically said hey watch the news something bad really happened and it's gonna be me okay <laughs> Okay. I mean, I don't, yeah, interesting. So, uh, he doesn't, don't know whether he doesn't tell them what happened, just that it was something bad and they need to watch the news. And at that point, again, he's making it very easy for you all very easy, to do yes. some police work as well. Now, when you arrived at the scene, when, 
when when did you actually called to the scene? Was it that afternoon? So, so it was that afternoon. I got. I actually live way on the other side of the county, so it took me about an hour to get there. But I worked the rest of the afternoon and into the evening, and my full focus was on the bloodstain pattern evidence that was at the scene. I had a crew of about six other crime scene techs that were doing other different functions. At this point, he was still at large, and were you all at the crime scene aware of, of the rest of what was happening, that there was these other things that were almost certainly related, or was it we just of, about that scene? We knew of the stolen cars, and we knew of, of one home invasion robbery that had happened just that day. Nobody had really linked it to being Brandon yet. Okay. So basically we were just focusing on the evidence at that point. So what did you all find at the scene? Mr. Bailey had been shot twice um, with a shotgun. It appears the first one was center mass on his chest. I mean, it looks like he reacted and grabbed that wound. But there is no pellet spread. There's no defense wounds. The wadding of the shotgun shell actually went into the body as well as 480 shot pellets. And basically that pretty much shredded all of his internal organs. So that was a fatal wound. However, he did receive a second wound after he was face down on the ground. Brandon, the killer, um, came up and shot him right at the base of the neck at an angle such that the pellets traveled down the spine and into the heart and lungs. So basically it was not necessary, but he was making sure that Mr. Bailey was was dead. So at the very least, we know that at least one of the shots was not in self-defense yes. in any way, shape, or form. And also, just from the pellet spread, the barrel of the gun, even on the first shot, he had to be within a foot. So he is pointing the weapon at Mr. Bailey. So whatever Mr. Bailey's reaction is, he is under threat at that time uh, when he gets shot. And it looks like he, Mr. Bailey just went straight down where he was at. He wasn't able to move, wasn't able to run. And we can also tell by his shirt, the blood flow patterns on his shirt, because the second shot that entered in at the base of his neck doesn't flow down the T-shirt. So he's already on the ground when that one that second shot is taken. And we find some unique things. There, he's been covered up with a blue blanket. We scour the lawn. We can only find one shotgun shell casing. We know he's been shot twice, but we can't find the other one, so we don't know really what's up with that. And then as you head towards the front door of the house, um, there was a lot of broken glass on the porch and then on the inside as well. But the storm door had been um, shut. The interior door was shut when we got there, but there was no damage to it. So it had been shut after the fact as well. So part of the cleanup or crime scene rearrangement um, that he was doing before he left the scene. So what we found was when we opened that door, we had this second victim, Mrs. Bailey, face down on the floor inside the foyer. And she had also been shot twice with a shotgun. First one appears to be, again, center mass right in the chest, and she reacts the same way. She grabs her chest, and she actually has glass embedded in her chest. So she was standing, looking out the glass door of the front porch. She could see her husband either be killed or she stepped in front of the glass and he was already down on the ground. But then she received a blast that knocked out that glass and shoved it into her chest. And there was a backspatter pattern on the side of the door frame that basically started chest high right where that wound was if you mm -hmm. stood her back up. and was conical 
so you okay. know where it came from. And it, it wasn't well-formed blood stain that we usually look for because it's mixed with a lot of tissue. It's mixed with um, fibers from her T-shirt. But just the overall shape of that pattern, I could actually measure out that it was three foot, ten and a half inches above the ground, and that's right where her chest wound right. lined up at autopsy. And it looks like she then kind of fell backwards and sat on her butt, and she's leaning against a railing, and she creates a void pattern there. And then there's a second shot. A void pattern? Tell me, what do you mean void um, pattern? A void, basically a void pattern is she's covering up it so there's no blood behind her back. Okay. Because she's against it. So it hasn't happened yet, but she's going to be shot now a second time. And it appears that the person stepped right in through the broken glass door, pointed the shotgun. It's um, right behind her right arm on her back, about mid-back. Okay. So she was kind of, probably kind of crumpled over a little bit, holding that first chest wound that exposed the side. Just like Mr. Bailey, there's no defense wounds. There's no exit wounds. She gets two shotgun blasts. Both wad cups end inside her body, which is also... Must have been very close. Very close range for all four of those shots. It's a little bit bigger pellet spread on the one on the back, but maybe putting him at two feet Mm -hmm. from that shot. And because of her location then on the floor, there is an impact pattern that can be seen on one of the pillars of this railing. And I I labeled it pillar number five. So there's an impact spatter that, that lands there and then arterial bleed starts and it's pumping blood out. So you can see a projected pattern on the lower portion of pillar number five and a pool of blood. And she's able to sit upright for a little bit, and she's bleeding, and you can see a a flow pattern down her Mm -hmm. T-shirt. And then at some point, she dies and kind of rolls over and lands face first and continues to bleed out. And so there's two different pools there. But it shows that she wasn't fighting. She wasn't doing anything. She was standing behind a glass door when her husband got shot, and then she got shot. And the second shot, too, on her was not necessary. Um, Again, you're talking 480 pellets and a wad cup going into your chest cavity and basically shredding all your organs, breaking all the bones, just heavy degree of injury. Yeah, he shot the second shot in both cases was after they were either incapacitated face down or completely yes. prone. Completely right? incapacitated. Yeah. So mm-hmm. they weren't a threat to, at that point. They were and they're both elderly people anyway. They were both in their sixties. They lived alone out there in the farm. So they really weren't a threat to anyone. He didn't know them. It was random. And again, it was a quiet Sunday morning. And it looked like from the kitchen table that they had probably been seated there having their coffee, reading the Sunday paper, and looked out the window and could see the driveway and probably saw him just pull up in the driveway. And Mr. Bailey went out to see who he was and what he wanted, Right. which is just simple. common, just yeah. common. And bad things happened very fast for the Baileys. Absolutely. So that was excellent, showing how the, his story matched up against the crime scene evidence. Yes. There was other evidence, too, of course, that helped to kind of yes, back all that up. Back at the hotel, he had checked in at 11 o'clock under the assumed name. At about 11.30, he called for a cab, but when the cab showed up, he didn't answer the door. And the manager went up, knocked on his door, and he could hear water running. So he went and told the cab driver, and the cab driver said, well, if he's in the shower, I'm not sticking around so he took off 
And about an hour later, the manager is back up checking out some other rooms and still hears the water running. So at that time, he tries to get a hold of Tom, who's checked in under the assumed name. Right. Um, he doesn't answer, so he uses his pass key. It's barricaded. So he has to force his way in because he hears the water running and he finds Tom naked in the bathroom with two self-inflicted stab wounds center chest. He's incoherent, he's foaming at the mouth. So the hotel manager gets out, calls 911 on a suicide attempt. EMT gets there right away. They drag him out of the tub. They turn off the he water. He's actually in the tub he's with in the stab tub. wounds. He's in the okay. tub naked with two stab wounds to his chest. Okay. He's um, immediately transported to the hospital. He was gone before the officers got there. So they're kind of left with not right. knowing what's going on. And they don't... It could be very random as far as It could be very concerned. random. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. just one more thing that's happening in Lincoln that day. But they start looking around and the only... They look for identification. They look for narcotics, a reason for why he's in the condition that he's in. He has a 108-degree temperature at that time. Again, he's foaming at the mouth. He shouldn't be alive with he that kind of He shouldn't be alive. He's in and out of consciousness. He's, and apparently he's been that way at least for maybe an hour and a half mm -hmm. if he's been in the tub that long. So they find methamphetamine. They find Toyota car keys, but no Toyota car out in the, because he's abandoned it miles away at Mark the Crossdresser's house. Right. Sorry for labeling him that, but yeah. um, just so you get the story. Just to get the story together, yeah. And then they find a pair of tennis shoes and his clothes. And they look at it, and, and I've done some training with officers on bloodstain pattern analysis, and they look at these tennis shoes, and there's blood all over these white tennis shoes, but there's no blood anywhere else in the hotel room and they thought that was really kind of strange so they gather up all of his stuff and they head to the hospital see if he's going to die because that kind of changes things on the report side of it of if he lives they're going to have to do a mental health evaluation so there's um, a lot of things now they're wrapped up in so they're sitting there waiting to see if they can the doctors can save this unknown tom person but they're listening to the talk channels because all of the other officers are down on cool stuff like homicides and home invasion robberies and they're with some guy who's just trying to kill himself and now they have a ton of paperwork to do mm -hmm. mental health wise and so they are sitting and waiting but they're listening to the cool kids what they have to say and they they are going down the list of all of the items they found in that stolen vehicle outside the county and inside the jean pocket was a girl's name lindsay they get lindsay's name and he's just sitting at a computer at random so he types in lindsay and kind of looks at what lindsay's been up to and then he hits known associates which is a little tab we have on our screen and anyone you've ever been contacted with will then pop up, and at the end is their mugshot. So he went over, started scrolling down. As an aside, I've come across many people from the Lincoln Police Department. It is one of the most innovative police departments it in is. the country. It is. I'm very You're proud the, of yeah, it. <laughs> it's out in the cornfields, but they, they're very sophisticated, especially with respect to like these kinds of intel systems. We, these we have our own homemade IT system. We had a man who, who built our IT system in the 70s when computers were latest thing. In the, yeah, hand and, crank. And our, and our <laughs> chief sent him off to learn how about computers to see if that can help us. And he's been there. He actually celebrated 50 years last Friday at our department oh, good for him. and he is great Claire Lindquist but so I don't know of too many departments that maybe have this feature and maybe they do but that officer was just 
able to sit and scroll down until he found a picture with a guy with a big tattoo of a feather on his neck and blew that up and hit print and took it into the doctors <laughs> and identified Brandon at that time. Brandon Crago. So now they are a part of the whole homicide investigation. So that all turns for them too because they've kind of broken the case on that. And we've got Brandon now locked down. So we've got guards on him while he's either going to live or die. That also says something about the officers, it does. that they took that time. They were thinking about it. And the blood that was on those tennis shoes turned out to be Mrs. Bailey's blood. And then the next day, Brandon's still in jail, and now everything's hit the news. And what happens is a um, garbage man pulls a pull cue out of the dumpster, looks in it, sees a gun, and goes, eh, we're going to call this into the police, too. And there was blood on the barrel, and that was Mr. Bailey's from the, the close contact wound to the neck. And then on the stock was Brandon's DNA. And it was all kept safe and secure inside that pool cue bag when he threw it into the dumpster. So that was, it was a wealth of evidence all over the state that just all came together. And once we were able to figure out who was responsible, we could piece it together. It would have been an interesting, I don't know how much you all went into, into making an illustration of linking all of the different crimes, but it would have been quite a timeline graphic. Car. I even lost track of the number of cars. That um, you, I think there stole. was four, four plus altogether. the ATV. Four plus the ATV. Yeah, four that we know of. Well, it's very sad for the, for the Baileys. Uh, thankfully, <laughs> none of the other folks yes. who were victimized were, were shot in that way. but There was one thing that Brandon Crago did say in his statement that I found absolutely truthful. And right after he gave his description of the event, he also ended it by saying that Mr. and Mrs. Bailey were innocent victims of a random and senseless act. Right. And that is completely true. So you presented the blood spatter at the sentencing hearing? I did not. I did have my charts up. We were ready to go as far as the trial was concerned. And they came to an agreement. They took the death penalty off of the table. And he agreed to two counts of first-degree murder uh, that he would plead guilty to. You know, the, the meth was, I'm sure, a contributing factor, but, you know, he has to be responsible himself. Yeah, so he um, was sentenced to life for both murder charges. A few months later, he got 30 years in federal for his original narcotics violations that he was facing. And then Ryan, his roommate, who had lied to the police on at least three interviews, and also when he found out they were looking for parts of the gun, went and threw it in a lake. And so we had to send the dive team out into the lake. But we did recover the barrel and the stock, fracture match to the... Oh, to the Benelli. Good. So that's that a was a fracture match. I love that too. That's a very interesting evidence. piece of work. And yeah. then they could tell that the two shotgun shells from the car and the two from the scene had been fired by that Benelli shotgun too. This had the same cycling marks sure. uh, on that. So there was a lot of a lot of really good evidence, a lot of work done by a lot of people. I just had that little small part of it with the bloodstains batter. Well, the uh, very, very crucial part of it, Aaron, that was excellent, I th excellent I think work. It, I think it did answer a lot of questions for people on how things went at that scene. We uh, uh, certainly very much appreciate having you on the podcast. I was a, a cruiser officer in the beginning. I did nine years in the cruiser taking calls for service, and I found out right away that pretty much everybody lies to the police. 
the good guys, the bad guys, everybody kind of slants it so that their story, you know, looks and makes them look in their best light. And I found early on that if I found forensic evidence, if I found fingerprints, if I found something that could prove. And so the path I took um, when I was a cruiser officer, because um, that was before DNA, especially before DNA in Nebraska, I started coming to the IAI conference. I started sending myself to trainings like that because I wanted to learn how can I cut through the lies? How can I, you know, see what actually happened? How can I prove it? So I'm a big forensic science geek. Um, well, you're speaking the language for Just Science <laughs> podcast listener. We're, yes. all, we're all forensic yes. science geeks here. So, yes. uh, so that's good. Thank you for being on the podcast well, today. thank you for inviting me. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to uh, the podcast episode today uh, with Aaron Sims, the uh, supervisor in the Lincoln, Nebraska Forensic Science Laboratory and Crime Scene Supervisor with uh, a fascinating story. Please tune in again, and please make sure you give us lots of likes and stars and thumbs up on whatever podcast mechanism you're using to download our episodes. Thank you so much. Take care. Next week, Just Science interviews Hillary Deleuze about recovering fingerprints from improvised explosive devices. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.